Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to Fem South. Fem South is a podcast produced right here in the deep south of Alabama. We're also a book club and local community dedicated to demystifying the feminist movement, to supporting women and educating women to be the change that they want to see in the world. If you're interested in joining FemSouth's book club, you can go to Facebook and ask to join our private Facebook book club group. If you want to learn more about FemSouth, go to FemSouth.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter and get up-to-date information on our latest episodes and blogs. And you can also support us financially by joining us on Patreon. And we have several tiers that you can join for as little as $1 a month. And you can get some FemSouth merchandise. So today I have with me our co-host, Sarah Rutledge Fisher. Today we're going to be talking about Sarah McBride's book, Tomorrow Will Be Different. So this is our October book. This is also our second book in our study of intersectional feminism. Before we start talking about Sarah McBride's book, I would like for Sarah to introduce herself and tell listeners about her initiative to start a support group for the LGBTQ youth in our area. For those of you who may not remember me from the intro to the Anger podcast a couple of months ago, my name is Sarah Rutledge Fisher, and I am an artist, a writer, and an activist uh, living here in Fairhope. And um, recently, I have started an initiative here in our small southern town to create an organization that will support the LGBTQ plus youth living here and in our surrounding areas. There is a lot of support for these kids in this area. But up until recently, that support has mostly been whispered in corners um, or in private conversations. And in the past few months, I've really been working to move that support out into the public conversation and encourage people to um, refuse to believe the message that this is not something that we can support out loud in our community. I'm very excited to be working with a nearby organization in a nearby city that's been running a similar program for the past four years, and I hope to have a chapter of their organization up and running in our community after the beginning of the year. So if that, separately from this podcast, uh, if that's something you are excited about getting involved in, please reach out through FemSouth and they will direct you to uh, me and those channels so we can get you involved. Thank you, Sarah. I'm really excited for this as well in our community. I think it's long overdue and much needed. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and dive in and start talking about Tomorrow Will Be Different. 
Sarah McBride is a progressive activist and currently the National Press Secretary at the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest LGBTQ plus civil rights organization. In 2016, Sarah made history when she became the first openly transgender person to address a major party convention. Sarah has become one of America's most public voices in the fight for LGBTQ plus equality, culminating in her address before the nation during the 2016 presidential election. She has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time, Cosmopolitan, Elle, Vogue, Rolling Stones, and the New Yorker. And she speaks regularly at national and political events. She's also running a campaign for the Senate in Delaware. That's really exciting. I'm so excited for that. Okay, so now that we know a little bit of an overview about Sarah, let's talk about what this book is about overall. Well, I think um, at one level, this is a political memoir, right? Sarah is a person living in a political sphere, and she's written a memoir of her particular struggles and particular motivations and how she's followed her political career to this point. And I'm not saying that to minimize the other points of this book. I think Sarah uses that very accessible structure of kind of a hero's journey political memoir to give people who are less familiar with the, um, the experiences and issues uh, met by the transgender community in our day and age and in this country. Uh, she, she uses that story as a way to introduce people to those issues. So it really provides um, the average person who is not very familiar with the transgender experience a great introduction to both a personal experience of transition of living a life as a transgender person of some of the particular struggles that Sarah herself goes through and also an introduction to a lot of the bigger picture issues that Sarah encounters as part of her political work. Yeah, and I would just add to that that it's also a very human story uh, and I think that part of her goal that she even says is in her book is to humanize the trans exper experience, right? Yeah, that's true. Calling it a political memoir does it a bit of an injustice. It really is a very personal story of, um, you know, of great challenge, great sorrow, great triumph. And uh, I think she navigates it beautifully. I think so too. And I will just say that it's a very touching and moving story. And I cried a lot <laughs> at I the end with her with her, the experience that she went through with her husband and his fight with cancer uh, was just really very emotional. It, it's a heartbreaking story. And I think what I find most amazing is the way she approaches it with unflinching vulnerability. And here's a person who is living a life that is already so vulnerable to um, attack. And she is opening not only her personal experience as a transgender woman in the United States in the public eye, but she's opening the experience of her husband, who I don't think we're worried about spoilers here. Guys, if you haven't read the book yet, pause this, go read it and come back. Um, her husband uh, is a transgender man, a person assigned the gender of female at birth 
who transitioned to male gender and is living his life um, as a man. And she documents with such unflinching openness their struggles through um, the, the issues that transgender people face in medical care, um, just their personal heartbreak of his ups and downs on his journey through cancer. And I think her vulnerability and her openness is such a gift to everyone who picks up the book. Yeah, I agree with that, Sarah. So let's just take a moment to kind of explain to our listeners who maybe are a little bit unfamiliar with what it means to be transgender. I think that's a great place to start because what we're talking about is not only uh, the transgender community, but the greater community of people who are uh, what is known as gender nonconforming. And I think that this can be an overwhelming idea for people who aren't already familiar with it. And if you'll bear with me, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the evolution of our understanding of gender. And I think um, key to that understanding are the terms that we've used, which is binary, evolving today to a more non-binary understanding of gender. So what does that mean? If you think about gender in terms of the stereotypical 1950s um, Dick and Jane, you know, early reader books, you have very, very clear binary of what male means and what female means. And we're not talking about physical, biological sex here. We're talking about gender, the experience and expression of uh, gender identity. Um, so in the 1950s era, binary understanding of gender, women are feminine and femininity includes things like wearing dresses and caring for children and being kind and deferential. There's a lot of um, leftover Victorian angel in the house ideas. Uh, I don't think I have to explain this very deeply. We all know what a 1950s stereotype of femininity is. And at the same time, there's the 1950s binary stereotype of masculinity, which is strength and aggression, power, um, not giving in to emotion, reason, order, and control, right? I mean, that's pretty basic, uh, traditional binary gender understanding. Well, as um, feminism and various other social forces begin to move the needle on our understanding of gender, by the late 80s and early 90s, many of us have evolved to thinking about gender as a spectrum. And this is really where a lot of people still stand today, the idea of gender as a spectrum. And if you think about this visually, you imagine a spectrum that goes from black to white. So on one end, solid black, let's put the masculine, since we're sticking with stereotypes here. And on the other end, solid white, let's put the feminine. And in the middle are various shades of gray. So in this gender spectrum-based idea of gender, whether you are biologically assigned the sex of female or male at birth, you can pick a point along this gender spectrum uh, and choose that spot as your gender identity that you exhibit 
express to the world that you feel reflects who you are. Now, we all know that you may be punished for the spot along that spectrum that you choose. We know that, you know, uh, women who chose to be what would be termed butch, expressing a very masculine presenting uh, gender expression, were not treated uh, well. Men who chose a more feminine expression of gender, um, choosing to wear makeup or or to wear um, stereotypically feminized style of clothes, were you know kind of lampooned um, in this '90s exhibition of the the kind of hyper feminized queen display of the gay man. So, um, in this idea of the gender spectrum choosing not to sit in your assigned point on the gender spectrum still comes with repercussions. But we do have an idea that people can choose their point um, along that spectrum and stick with it. A little further along, we evolve our understanding a little more to thinking that the point on that spectrum can be fluid. So the earlier gender spectrum idea, there was an idea that you had an innate point or you chose a point and you stuck with it. Uh, that if you were a butch woman, you were a butch woman from the time you didn't want to wear dresses as a child to the time you died. And that if you were a masculine presenting man, you were just a masculine presenting man. What uh, our understanding evolved to was an idea that that restriction is completely arbitrary, that there's no reason a person might decide to present their physical appearance, uh, their physical expression of gender as more feminine on one day and more masculine on the other day. I don't think anybody would object to me wanting to wear, you know, jeans and a black t-shirt today and then wanting to put on lipstick and heels tomorrow night to go out to an event. And so that's not too difficult for us to understand. Um, I, although I, I certainly think that some people are probably still believe that there is, that whether I wear jeans and a t-shirt today and a dress tomorrow night, there's some essential point that I, that I'm going to hone back to every time. And that's, like I said, this idea of a spectrum, whether you're at a fixed point or whether you're fluid in your location along the spectrum, is still where most people sit in their understanding of gender and how gender, as separate from biological sex, works in the world. But in the sense that our understanding of this social construct of gender keeps evolving, the next step in this evolution has been a recognition that the spectrum itself is a social construct. There's no reason that all of these qualities that we line up along this spectrum have to sit at one point or the other. And so if you imagine yourself looking at a, a plane, uh, looking at a line that goes from dark black on one side to white on the other, and then imagine yourself pivoting in relation to that and realizing that what you're looking at is not a line of points lined up in order, but a wide plane of points scattered across a vast area, then suddenly these traits that seemed hyper-feminine at one point or hyper-masculine at the other point are suddenly just 
one of innumerable collections of choices that you can make about how you present yourself to the world. And so the idea of choosing a, a spot along a spectrum becomes kind of ridiculous when you realize the spectrum doesn't exist, that there's no reason you can't wear jeans and combat boots and lipstick with a closely cropped beard. Now, even hearing me describe that juxtaposition of traits that we see as male and female may make people uncomfortable just hearing me describe it. And it certainly seems to make some people uncomfortable interacting with it. Uh, and I, I don't want to shame anyone for feeling some discomfort with that. Uh, these ideas about gender are so essential in our socialization. We learn them so early and they are so core to the way we learn to navigate the world that um, feeling them shift or experiencing them seeming less solid than we thought they were can be really unnerving. So if this idea makes you feel uncomfortable, don't don't feel the need to rush into reaction to it. Just maybe sit with it and explore it. So I want to loop back around. I've taken us pretty far afield um, talking about non-binary gender, but I think this is an important step to talking today about Sarah's book because she is addressing not only her experience as a transgender woman, but also her work fighting on behalf of people whose experience of their gender does not conform with the sex they were assigned at birth. And that includes people who are transgender women, transgender men, or gender non-conforming people who don't choose to express their gender as either male or female. Um, real fast before we move on to a couple of other things, I want to touch on a few vocabulary words that I have mentioned. We've already gone over non-binary or gender non-conforming, and those both tend to be words for people who do not choose to fall into a male or female assigned category of gender, who do not choose to present a male or female uh, assigned category of gender. Uh, there's also a term that you may have heard called cisgender or a cisgendered woman or a cis woman. It's spelled C-I-S. And uh, I, I don't remember the origins of it. I always look it up and forget it again. But what's important to understand about it is that it what it indicates is uh, a person who is able to move through the world consistent with societally expected gender norms. So a person who can walk through the grocery store as a woman and never have her status as a woman questioned is a cisgendered woman. And the same for men. Uh, and so when we talk about transgender and gender nonconforming people, we often also talk about cisgender people uh, as a way of distinguishing. Thank you, Sarah. That's really helpful as we move forward in this discussion. And one of the reasons why we chose this book is because we wanted to have this perspective as we move into intersectional feminism. And so I think maybe the next discussion point for us is to talk about 
intersectional feminism and the transgender experience that Sarah is talking about and how and how it fits in with feminism. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important that feminism be intersectional of all LGBTQ plus experience. And I think exploration of how trans issues and trans experience is important to feminism uh, encapsulates so much of what's important about the, the greater intersectionality. So there are certainly schools of feminist thought, though I um, hesitate to even give them that much respect, uh, who, who suggest that trans women and trans men have no place in feminism. And um, that is not the stance we take here at Fem South. But um, I wanted to bring that up because I think it's important to have the context that historically feminism has done a great deal of work to exclude lesbians and people of nonconforming gender from its ranks. And, and I'm really happy to see that changing. And I wanted to read a little bit from um, one of the really pivotal um, pieces of writing in that journey. It's actually fairly old right now. Um, it's by a person named Emi Koyama, and uh, I'm not sure, I believe their pronouns are them, they, so I'll do my best to honor that. And uh, their piece of writing is called The Trans Feminist Manifesto. Now, they published this piece in 2001, which astonishes me that it's been 18 years, but it's so relevant today. So let me just read what they had to say about why transgender issues are so important to feminism. Here's the first quote I wanted to share. Every time a group of women previously silenced begins to speak out, other feminists are challenged to rethink their idea of whom they represent and what they stand for. While this process sometimes leads to a painful realization of our own biases and internal oppressions as feminists, it eventually benefits the movements by widening our perspectives and constituency. It is under this understanding that we declare that the time has come for trans women to openly take part in the feminist revolution, further expanding the scope of the movement. And I, I think that so beautifully captures why it's important for feminism to open to the issues of trans women. Uh, and then she goes on a little later to speak about what the, um, the goals of what she calls trans feminism is. She says, trans feminism believes in the notion that there are as many ways of being a woman as there are women, that we should be free to make our own decisions without guilt. To this end, trans feminism confronts social and political institutions that inhibit or narrow our individual choices while refusing to blame individual women for making whatever personal decisions. It is unnecessary, in fact, oppressive, to require women to abandon their freedom to make personal choices to be considered a true feminist, for it will only replace the rigid patriarchal construct of ideal femininity with a slightly modified feminist version that is just as rigid. I think that just so beautifully encapsulates uh, why it is important that we're having this conversation today. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when we think about the ways in which trans women have to face even more this need to present and identify with the essential feminine. And I think Sarah talks a little bit about this in her book as she starts to um, transition into presenting uh, female, like how she had to sort of navigate where she felt comfortable in that presentation. She mentioned applying more makeup than what was necessary and the clothes that she chose. And and after a while, after kind of getting used to that, she figured out what was the sweet spot for her in terms of how she presented. But I think it's really important to think about what is feminine. How do we navigate society's need for us to conform to some kind of standard of femininity? For trans women, it's an even larger issue because then we get into the whole dangers of non-passing, right? Yeah, I think that is so interesting because really as women, as cisgendered women, we are already constantly struggling with conforming or not conforming to the expectations that patriarchal culture puts on us to conform to ideas of femininity. You know, I mean, as as a cisgendered woman, I spend more time than I should thinking about do I want to spend more time fixing my hair? Am I spending too much time fixing my hair? Should I wear makeup? Would it look silly if I wore makeup? I mean, the traps are ridiculous and they're, and they're old. We don't, we don't need to repeat them. You wear too much makeup, you're a whore. You don't wear enough makeup, you're um, not feminine. You don't dress feminine enough and you're too masculine. You dress too feminine and you're either weak or hypersexualized. And I think trying to put a different lens on it just because it's the experience of a transgender person almost misses the point. I mean, what, what trans women deal with when they transition to female gender is almost an exaggeration of that same struggle. It's not that they're dealing with a different struggle, but they're almost under a more extreme microscope. Um, and, and it kind of leads us into the idea of whether a person is passing. And I think Sarah talks about this a little bit. It's a real hot button topic within the transgender and gender non-conforming world, because on the one hand, there are real and legitimate reasons to want to pass. And I think we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, And I'm sorry, let me just step back. By passing, what we mean is uh, for a trans woman, a woman who was assigned the male gender at birth, but has transitioned and is presenting herself to the world as a woman, to be able to walk down the street and have no one question her gender as a woman, that would be passing. And likewise, for a trans man, someone who was assigned the female gender at birth but has transitioned and is presenting to the world as a man to be able to enter a general space and not be questioned uh, on the basis of gender. Talking about passing, passing is a really controversial topic within transgender communities because a lot of times people who are cisgender look at transgender people from the outside and expect that the goal of that person is to pass, to appear uh, as if the gender they are presenting to the world 
is the gender they were assigned at birth. And I think Sarah gets to this a little bit when she's talking to the the young girl, I think the seven-year-old, who asks Sarah, what is your favorite thing about being transgender? And Sarah has this moment where she thinks nobody's ever asked me that because the goal from society's standpoint was always that Sarah would be thinking what was her favorite thing about finally being a woman. But there's a real sense within the transgender community that they shouldn't have to be ashamed to be transgender. It shouldn't be um, passing shouldn't have to be the ultimate goal. Let's take a quick break. You've been listening to Fem South, and we'll be right back. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, There's I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So... I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the Black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. Well, I wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. And we're back. I have Sarah Rutledge Fisher with me, and we are talking about Sarah McBride's book, Tomorrow Will Be Different. Fem South is a local podcast and book club and community dedicated to supporting women in the South. If you would like to learn more about us, you can go to our website, www.femsouth.com, and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also ask to join our private Facebook book club group and support us on Patreon at Patreon slash FemSouth. Please go to iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcast and rate us and give us some positive feedback. Let's get back to our show. So one of the most important things to be aware of is that it might not be possible for everyone to pass. So it's kind of inappropriate for passing to be our gold standard as a society. Yeah. And we don't live in a society, even even if for some reason we all agreed that passing was a goal, we don't live in a society that facilitates that. Health insurance, whether you have it or not, rarely covers any of the medical procedures that people seek in order to, um, to pass as the, their gender. But it can also be something of a fixation, both internally and externally. So for the cisgender community, the question of whether a transgender person passes or not can often seem like the most important question, when to that person, it's just one of many aspects of being transgender. And within the transgender community, um, absorbing that hierarchy that the idea that passing is the goal and that the people who can pass are the most high status and the people who cannot pass are lower status creates a, a horrible social structure and just another example of internalized patriarchal oppression. But then, like you're saying, there are real dangers. For trans women who do pass, they face enormous danger uh, from straight white men who are attracted to them. 
for uh, trans women who do not pass, they face enormous danger from straight white men who are attracted to them. Um, (laughs) So I think maybe the point is that um, the trans women aren't the problem, but it's dangerous for them either way. Um, I think it's dangerous for them either way. I think that's a really important point to me. And, and think about Sarah, Sarah, passes very well and she admits her own privilege. She talks about this incident in her book when she made a post back in, you know, during the bathroom debates in in North Carolina and she was she was visiting North Carolina speaking there or something and she took a a selfie in the bathroom in protest against it and she got a lot of backlash from the trans community basically calling her out on her ability to pass so well that it wasn't really shocking enough. Right, right. It's kind of a damned if you do. Can I say that on here? Damned if you do. Yeah, I think you use it. (laughs) Yeah. Because I think, I guess, ultimately, if you're trying to convince a antagonistic culture that to accept you, it's less threatening if you do pass. Well, and let me also just uh, chime in to say that uh, trans men also experience a lot of danger whether they are passing or not passing. So the dangers of passing are not just limited to the trans female community. And I think coming back to these gender binaries that demand essential feminine or essential masculine and what are those things anyway? I mean, this is why we have to keep coming back and challenging the conformity that society demands of both men and women. Absolutely. And while we're talking about it, I think trans men often have some of the most interesting perspectives on gender because these are people who were assigned the female gender at birth and often lived decades as young girls or women before transitioning and passing as men. And I follow um, a handful of trans men on Instagram and Twitter and and their discussions of how their experience of moving through the world has changed as society perceives their gender to change is not at all surprising, but really great to get a first-person perspective on. Yeah, I think even Sarah talks about some of the changes that she made. Like, for example, she talks about her smile that she had to suppress because when she was presenting as a as a man, she didn't have the same fear of being harassed on the streets. And then as a female, she talks about having to suppress that smile because it would be too inviting for that kind of uh, behavior. It was interesting to see her transition into becoming and presenting a female and having to experience that kind of fear. Um, She talks about the misogyny, the double standards, all these things really became not an abstract concept, but a lived experience for her. Absolutely. So Sarah has this great passage where she is talking about the idea of gender. And I I think kind of stepping back to a big picture view of the transgender experience in feminism, a lot of people struggle with this idea that, you know, in feminism, we we are fighting for this idea that gender is a social construct. And that the reasons that the patriarchy uses for holding women back are just invented qualities that have nothing to do with being women versus being men and and really come from being an oppressed population versus not. And so the struggle is, 
if gender is just a social construct, then what is what is transgender? Isn't that just a social construct? If my gender of being female isn't real, then how is being transgender real? And I think Sarah had such a great, great response to this. Yeah, because that was the question that her father presented to her when he first when she first came out to her parents. I loved her explanation to him. And I'm a I'm a writer. I love words. And so the fact that she tied it into language just really, um, just really resonated with me. Do you mind if I read it? No, please. She said, I explained to him that for me, gender is a lot like language. Language, too, is a societal construct, but one that expresses very real things. We can respect that people can have a very real gender identity while also acknowledging that gender is fluid and that gender-based stereotypes are not an accurate representation of the rich diversity within any gender identity. And she later comes back to that topic when discussing the um, decisions to make physical changes to her body. And so again, this connects back to the idea of passing um, but also, you know, if gender is just a social construct, then why do you need to make a physical change in order to embody a gender? These are all valid questions, but they don't negate the real experiences of people in the world. And so when somebody asked her, why would you need to change your body if you say gender is removed from anatomy? She says, Acknowledging that the two concepts are distinct does not preclude them from ever interacting, and no one would expect cisgender people to defend their individual feelings about their own body parts. And I thought that really resonated. You know, just because I think that just just because my gender experience as a woman in the world is a social construct bouncing off of patriarchy doesn't mean that my patriarchal constructed feelings about the various parts of my body aren't real. I may not like them. I may wish they were different, but it doesn't mean they're not a real part of my experience. Yeah. I also like the fact that she brings language into it because language is so important. Naming is so important. Pronouns are so important. Um, identification is so important and it's even more important for the safety of transgender people to recognize and honor their their choice of name and, and pronoun. And I think as the trans community and those who want to challenge the non-binary system demand the proper use of their pronouns, then as a culture we get used to this idea that pronouns do carry a lot of weight and meaning. I think this is a great step in our um and our human evolution of consciousness, really. You can name yourself differently. You can make these choices about how you want to identify and present. And I love this fluid, this idea that it's fluid. This is important for trans people, but this is important for all people. This is definitely important for me. I really relate to this idea that, you know, gender is, is fluid, that you can that you can think about yourself on so many different levels. It doesn't have to be masculine or feminine because most of my life I've been pressured to be, you know, more feminine than I feel comfortable with. Or I've questioned on the other end of that, do I only identify as uh, masculine but it, because that, ha- that gender has more value culturally? Um, I've always kind of struggled between those two sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. And I love this idea that it doesn't have to be 
either of those. It could just be so fluid. For sure. And I don't mean to, we are not in any way trying to minimize the experience of being a transgender person who is unable to express that gender. But there are so many ways that we can tap into our own experience of feeling unable to live our authentic selves um, and feeling pressured to pin those selves into societally defined roles. And we can tap into that understanding really as a way to, um, to have great empathy with the struggle of being a transgender person in our current society. Yes. And I loved what you said about um, how as more and more transgender people are part of our uh, cultural conversation, more and more as uh, transgender and gender nonconforming people are represented in media and politics and on the public stage, that our, our society as a whole becomes more comfortable normalizing um, things like uh, using they, them pronouns or other, um, you know, self-chosen pronouns or um, normalizing an understanding of gender transition or non-binary gender. And I think that just like with any other group who has been marginalized by the patriarchal structure of our society, growing representation is so incredibly important. And that brings me back to that scene of Sarah and the seven-year-old seven girl, I think, that, she, that interviewed her. Um, because in that moment, Sarah got to both experience witnessing this child who was comfortably able to grow up as a trans girl and and be confident and happy in her transgender identity and Sarah got to look back and imagine not only what it would have been like to be able to adopt the female gender at that age but also to imagine what it would have been like to have a public figure to look up to who was a trans woman at that age. And I, I just think that's so powerful. I think it's exciting that there are more and more trans and gender nonconforming people in the public stage. I agree with you. I, I think it's interesting that we're seeing a whole new generation of young people whose parents are supportive and are letting them transition or identify at an early age, because I think that's going to have a tremendous effect on the way we pathologize uh, gender dysphoria, right? I think it's interesting because that's one of the things that was mentioned in the Trans Feminist Manifesto was the need to depathologize. Is that a word? Depathologize? I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> depathologize gender dysphoria as well and to normalize it, that it's not a a mental problem. It's an actual normal experience that people have. I think that's really important. I think it's also important to acknowledge that as we live in a world where transgender and non-binary gender is more accepted, there are lots of people who are transgender and do not experience gender dysphoria. And I think as we are moving into a world where there is less psychological damage inflicted on people who identify with a gender that is different than the one they were assigned at birth. We're discovering that a lot of the 
harm that we have identified as correlating with the transgender experience is not caused by anything other than the patriarchal harm inflicted on transgender and gender nonconforming people. And so as much as there are more and more transgender and gender nonconforming people on the public stage um, in our entertainment, in movies and TV, in our political arenas, um, we're also experiencing a huge uh, political backlash to the social progression that's been happening. And Sarah describes it heartbreakingly. She says, Progress isn't always linear and can often elicit a dangerous backlash, one that often targets the most marginalized within a community. And I think we've seen this a lot recently. Yeah. I mean, that brings us to a conversation about Trump's uh, anti everything, everybody, everybody <laughs> anti everybody, but definitely from day one, an attack on the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Literally from day one. Yeah. And that was so disheartening to to go on this journey with Sarah from her experience in politics in Delaware, mm-hmm. her home state, and then her experience working in the White House and 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 and, and um all the trans LGBTQT activists that were welcomed into Obama's administration and even on Hillary Clinton's um campaign platform and then for it to all just go away. Ugh. I have to tell you that, though it certainly wasn't the most heartbreaking journey in the book, um, because, of course, that's the personal journey. But um, following the journey back into the Obama White House and then through the end of that administration, just, oh, it just gutted me. I was not ready to to experience that loss again. (laughs) I know. And I can't even imagine how... The community feels and how and how upsetting it is. Sure, I, I think there's definitely a campaign to make public spaces and private employment uh, less safe for transgender people. So there's the uh, and and this doesn't necessarily come from the federal level, but it's supported by the administration and fueled by the um, the political fervor of. Trump's base, the the bathroom bills that Sarah discusses so much that continue to just um, tear across the land. I think one of the the most important points that she makes about the bathroom bills um, really gets to the core of a lot of the legislature that removes protections from transgender and gender nonconforming people is that when you create a world in which a person cannot use the restroom, you are excluding them from public life. You are insisting that they only stay at home, that they not use public spaces, that they not go to the grocery store, go to the movies. Um, and I don't even know where to go with this. It's, it's just so horrid to me. It's so heartbreaking to me. And I get so angry. Uh, we've already done our anger podcast. We don't need to go back there today. <laughs> I know. I get angry too, though, because we live in a community where I've had to have these arguments with people who, you know, who believe and think the craziest things about that whole controversial topic. And it's, and they don't understand. And I think maybe if you're listening and you don't understand, 
how much that affects and how much danger that puts on a person to have to enter into a bathroom which they do not identify. That's putting a target, essentially, for harassment on that person. And it's interesting that that has become such a political point for the far right and that we're still dealing with this kind of legislation. Yeah, Sarah had a couple of great quotes about this, um, you know, about the bathroom bills and about people's misconceptions. That there are, I think, some very intentionally disseminated ideas about what transgender people are. And I think the choice of the word what is kind of um, useful there. People don't know that they know transgender people a lot of times. And so um, I think there are a lot of very intentionally disseminated ideas about who transgender people are. And these are ideas that they are um, these horribly sexually perverse uh deviant predators and i don't i don't think that these depictions are by accident and really these are no different than the ideas that were disseminated about gay men in the 90s in the middle of the aids crisis and honestly this is not that much different than the ideas disseminated in the Jim Crow South about, you know, what black men were capable of. This is the go-to story for anyone wanting to create a monster behind the bathroom door. Uh, Sarah says, it's no surprise that anti-trans extremists have targeted bathrooms. Every fight for civil and human rights over the last decades has included controversies about restrooms. And she also says, as gay people become a less effective boogeyman for anti-equality forces, extreme politicians begin to turn their attention to transgender people. And so that's all the more reason that it's important to read books like this, where Sarah McBride gives us a personal window into her life and her experience so that people who don't say know a transgender person or don't know that they know a transgender person can have the experience of benefiting from her personal perspective. Yeah, I think so. I think that we need to be reading more of these books. <laughs> I think this is a duty of feminists. Absolutely. And I think it's our, it's our responsibility. Lee and I were having a conversation the other day um, about the desire to learn about people's experience from the people themselves. And, and this is such a struggle when you're an ally or an advocate for a community of people who are already suffering a lot of discrimination and harm. You want to understand their experience as well as you can, and you want to understand it on a personal level. But at the same time, uh, it can create quite a burden to ask that person to share their experience with you. Often that experience can be very painful or very personal. Um, or to speak and risk being considered the voice of an entire group of people. And so while I think the entire goal of this book club and this podcast is to open up and learn from each other and, um, and to learn from people of all experiences, 
It's also so fantastic when we have access to something like Sarah's book where we can really learn some of the the deeper and more painful experiences of navigating life as a transgender woman without imposing a burden on somebody who is already dealing with all of the burdens of living uh, in a society that oppresses and refuses to acknowledge them. And I think before we end the podcast, we definitely need to just for a moment talk about the Supreme Court cases that are currently being debated on trans rights, right? Yes. Um, Back in early October, the Supreme Court heard three cases together that will um, be pivotal in deciding the boundaries of employment discrimination rights for not just trans people, but for the LGBTQ community as a whole. So um, these cases um, all revolve around the workplace protections of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So Title VII of the Civil Rights Act says that it's unlawful for an employer to discriminate against someone with, quote, respect to his compensation, terms, condition, or privileges of employment because of such individuals' race, color, sex, or national origin. So the language at issue in these cases is the on the basis of sex language. Now, this language has been very important to feminism because it's the language that um, through the courts has been determined to mean that employers cannot fire a woman for getting pregnant, cannot um, reassign a woman for anything to do with sex, Um, sexual harassment, sex characteristics. But... What's at question is whether somebody's LGBTQ plus status is considered on the basis of sex. So there were three cases. One of them involved a gay man who was fired from his position as a child welfare services coordinator in Clayton County, Georgia, not long after he joined a gay softball league. Another case involves a gay man who was fired from his job as a skydiving instructor in New York after he jokingly reassured a woman customer that she had nothing to fear from being strapped to him in the air because he was gay. And the uh, third case uh, involves a transgender woman who was fired from her job at a family-run funeral home in Detroit after she transitioned from male to female. The case is really, well... Some people think the case is really complicated. I think it's very simple. To me, it's very clear that each of these actions were taken on the basis of sex. But that will be a matter of each justice's textual interpretation and philosophy about how to interpret uh, the language of the law. And so the justices of the Supreme Court will be considering the issues in this case for a while. There is a whole lot of analysis of the oral arguments online, and anyone who wants to dive into that has a very deep well to fall down. But in reality, we won't probably hear the outcome of this until May or June. So it's exciting that these are before the Supreme Court. It is, a, it is nerve-wracking, but it's a long game. Yeah, and hopefully it leads to federal protection for LGBTQ community. That would be amazing. If, I mean, that's what we need. 
if the justices decided that these actions were taken on the basis of sex, it would give the LGBT community workplace protections at the same level that women currently have protections in the workplace. But we need they need more than workplace protection. Absolutely. And so that's why a broader bill needs to come through with the Equality Act, right? Right, right. So hopefully, <laughs> I don't know, we'll see what happens in 2020. Well, you know, if we if we keep having more people like Sarah McBride working in politics, not only is her work changing things, not only is her representation changing the landscape for the people who look up to her, but her presence in the legislature, her presence on Capitol Hill changes the stage. Each one of those people who sits down and has a conversation with her now has a personal relationship with a person who is transgender and that understanding changes. So thank you, Sarah, for joining me uh, talking about this really important book. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're a co-host with FemSouth. Thank you, Lee. This is so important, and I really appreciate you setting the stage for these conversations. Thank you. And I'm, again, very excited about the work that you're doing in our community. And if you want to get involved, please reach out to us, and I'll pass on Sarah's information. All right. You've been listening to FemSouth. Fem South.